Uh, in my last years at SMBC, I was uh, part of a small gym in a local suburb. Uh, it was owned by a Roman Catholic man, and very early in the morning, three other men would come. They were all Roman Catholics. I was the only non-Roman Catholic. I know that they liked me because they were rude to me continually. That's how Australian men show affection. And uh, I was the only Protestant. And so I would often ask them to come to college if I was speaking there. And one night I was giving a two-hour lecture and my friend Byrne came. Next morning, after we'd worked out at the gym, we'd work out at the gym for about an hour, then go to the coffee shop and sit for an hour and a half and sip coffee together to work off the effects of the gym. I said to Byrne, what did you think of the lecture last night? He said, I thought it was brilliant. Oh, good. Uh, what particularly did you think was brilliant? When you said two comes before three. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? I was speaking about these verses. I was speaking about the Ten Commandments. And please note that for a Roman Catholic, it is a revolutionary thought, isn't it, that two comes before three. God says in verse two, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you, therefore, verse three, live this way. He does not say, if you live this way, I will redeem you. He says that I have redeemed you, Therefore, live this way. I said yesterday that when we speak to our children, we ought to always do what God does. Not only tell them what to do, but tell them why to do it. And the Ten Commandments, of course, is an excellent example of that. God says, here are the ten principles. But he says, first of all, in verse 2, this is why you are to do what you are to do. The Ten Commandments are literally the ten words. You'll know you'll find them here in Exodus 20, but you'll also find them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, the great advantage, I think, of being an Anglican, one of the advantages of being an Anglican, is that every Sunday when you go to church, you get the Anglican prayer book. And in the Anglican prayer book, there are the Ten Commandments, and you hear them every week. This is the basis, many people say, of Western society. But of course... The secularists want to get rid of any knowledge, any practice of the Ten Commandments and indeed any knowledge of the Ten Commandments at all. Other foreign gods may have their standards, but here are God's standards for his redeemed people and the Apostle Paul says that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is holy because it is God's standard, it is right, it is righteous and it is good because these are the words of our Father and it reflects his deep knowledge of us. When a society is built on the Ten Commandments, that society will thrive. Now notice the first four commandments relate really to our relationship with God. And the last five commandments relate really to our relationship with one another. The transitional commandment, the central commandment in many ways is verse 12, honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Why is this so central? Why is this the transitional uh, commandment? Because if you look at the verse, verse 12, the Lord your God is giving you, that that's saying the Lord your God also is in verse 2, it is also in verse 4, 
It is also in verse 7, and it is also in verse 10, the Lord your God. But of course, this is a transitional commandment as well, because the first neighbours which we meet are our parents. And so if you're going to love your neighbour, you need to love your parents. And there is a sense in which your parents, of course, are God's channel of life to you. If it weren't for them, you would not have any being. Because of their activity, you exist. And so there's a sense in which they stand in the place of God himself as creator and they stand also as the first neighbours that we are going to meet. Now what does this mean, therefore, verse 12, that we are to honour our father and mother? Well, the Apostle Paul made it clear yesterday, if you're a child, you'll obey them. That's quite clear. But what about when we get older? Paul says it's right that you should obey them. But when you get older, it may well be, I found as my parents got older, that I would think about questions which I could ask them for their advice. And it seemed to me that that was quite respectful. Taking them out for a favourite meal, going to a favourite special place. These are all ways, as we get older, in which we can show a pattern for the next generation of our love and respect and honouring the previous generation so that the next generation will carry it on. Now notice that the commands, these commandments shape the moral standards of the West. And I want you to notice how they deal with thoughts, words and deeds. Look at the first and the last commandment. They deal with thoughts, don't they? You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not covet. Uh, They deal with words. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Do not lie. They deal with deeds. Don't Practice idolatry, rest on the Sabbath day, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Ten times in Genesis 1, God says, we have the ten words of creation in Genesis 1. God spoke, God said, ten times. And now, ten times, God speaks and gives these words to shape the redeemed living of his people. Wonderful commandments. Read them again and again. Read them to your children. Read them to yourself. These are good words from our Heavenly Father to his redeemed people. Now let me make three concluding remarks. The sermon's not coming to an end. This part of it is. Number one, we are not secularists. We are not mere humanitarians. Have you heard that ad for the Fred Hollows Foundation? It goes like this. Our highest calling is to help one another. That's not our highest calling. Our highest calling is to honour God. And in honouring God, we will help one another. We will love our neighbour. It is typical of the secularist that they want the fruit of a relationship with God. They just don't want God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve said? We want your garden. We want the paradise. We just don't want you. And we want the fruit of Ten Commandment living We just don't want to have anything to do with God. We are not secular. Secondly, look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not as though our God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, is one God among many. No, in reality, there are no other gods. The worship of Baal in the Old Testament was very real. But Baal was not real. The worship of Allah 
is very real, but Allah is not real. He is a false god. He does not exist. You shall have no other gods before me. It just reveals the human tendency of making gods in our own image. There are no other gods. And the third thing I want to say is just to focus on that last commandment, you shall not covet. What an interesting commandment that is, that the commandments begin with the worship of God and end with an exhortation not to be looking too hard at the sleek donkey next door. The wife, the servants, the donkey, the possessions, all may have an allure. I want a better standing. I want a better body. I want a better spouse. I want more possessions. We can easily create false idols. Be careful of it. I once heard a speaker in front of a men's convention say, um, are you greedy? Well, I'll tell you the test by which you can test whether or not you are greedy and whether or not you have a tendency to covet and greed. And the man simply said, uh, just take your finger, this is, the be- this is the best test, take your finger, put it on your pulse, if you can feel a pulse, you are greedy. That's it. In other words, if you're living, you tend to be greedy. So be careful. These are God's ten good words, ten words in creation, ten words for living the redeemed life. Okay, we're going to bounce in our Bibles just this morning. So now let me take you to Romans chapter 3. So you're going to need your device there or your Bible, but stick with me because we're going to bounce a bit. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has already shown us that the Jew who does not fulfill, live, live consistently with his profession is short of God's mark. And he asks himself this question. Paul is often doing this throughout Romans. What advantage, verse three, of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What advantage does Israel have? Israel just doesn't have the revelation of God in the created order. No, Israel were the first to receive the very first words the moral direction of God himself. And that's a great advantage. Paul doesn't actually list any other advantages. Now come to verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Now, Paul says this holy, right and good law, the Ten Commandments, if you like, is good because, verse 19, it defines sin and it identifies me as a sinner because I cannot do it. Now, that is the basic ministry of the law. Look at verse 20 again. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, it is through the law we become conscious of sin. So I've got a fever. I go to my doctor and my doctor puts a thermometer in my mouth. And he takes the thermometer out and he looks at it and he says, well, you do have an elevated temperature. You do have an infection. So my prescription is take that thermometer home. Look, you have it. Test your temperature three times every day and come back in a week. And I said, but doctor, you're just telling me I've got a problem. That thermometer is not going to solve my problem. And Paul says that is exactly what the law is for. The law's not the, the solution to the problem. 
The law simply tells you you've got a problem. The solution, Paul says, is coming. But here are the Ten Commandments. You live by those rules, but I can't. That's right. You've got a problem. And so Paul says, look at verse 24 of chapter 3. This is the way God sets us in the right with himself and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are right with God, not by law, but we are right with God by God's redeeming activity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come with me to verse 27. And Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what, on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but that of, that of faith. If we'd achieved righteousness by keeping the law, we'd have much to boast about. But we have nothing to boast about ourselves because Christ has done it all. Look at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law's standards. In fact, the way God sets us right with himself is a demonstration, verse 25, of his justice. Verse 26, it's a demonstration of his justice because Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly and then dies in our place as though he is a guilty lawbreaker, but we are the lawbreakers. Now, dear friends, what is the problem? The problem is this, and it is a common problem. Last year I met a man who went out and formed his own missionary society in Africa. He was in his early 80s. He goes to Africa three times a year in his early 80s. Uh, he has chosen the Swahili name for his missionary society, Uakika. Uakika is the Swahili word for certainty. And he goes and he conducts what he calls grace clinics for African evangelists. What is the gospel of the African evangelist? Here it is. You come to Christ. You put your trust in Christ and he will forgive you. He will give you a seat at God's table. Now you are in Christ. You make sure you maintain your place by keeping the Ten Commandments. And here they are. Dear friends, that is no gospel at all. At our old church, Mandarin speaking pastor, very insightful. He found that so often the gospel that was presented to the Mandarin speakers was week one. Here is the gospel. You put your faith in Christ and it's all free. And so many people put their faith in Christ. Come back week two. Right now, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. But last year you said it was last week you said it was free. Now you're telling us it's all conditional. There is no gospel. In what I have just said. And that's why we need to hear the gospel again and again. How many of us have a relationship with God which goes up and down on the basis of whether or not we're having a good week with the Ten Commandments? And yet we're right with God because Jesus has kept the Ten Commandments on our behalf perfectly. On our behalf. And so the law is no help to save me and it is no help to make me holy. Now listen to this interaction which happened on the streets of Sydney. Uh, there's a book called Jenna of George Street. George Street is a main street in Sydney. Jenna was, Frank Jenner was a, a great evangelist who'd go up and down George Street and he'd ask uh, 
10 people every lunchtime, one question. Excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, could I ask you one question? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I'll leave you with the implications of that answer. And that's all they do. And people all over the world got saved through this man. The man who wrote the story of Jenna uh, goes, after Jenna's death, goes up George Street himself. I want to read from his account. Uh, My wife and I walked up George Street and we found at Sydney Town Hall a man sitting on the steps. Uh, He had a sign which said that love is the fulfilling of the law. We stopped to observe him. He's slim, he's in his early 20s. A cap is so well pulled down over his short blonde hair that we do not see the silver studs in his eyebrows until we're actually talking to him. He's open, he's friendly, and he turns his board around and it says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's true, isn't it? He challenges with a smile. Love is really important. Yes, I reply. It is scriptural, it is very true. And I say to him, are you a Christian? He says, oh yes. His eyes lighting up. I'm on fire for Jesus. Jesus is all my life. And he says, what's your spiritual preference? Oh, I say, I'm a Christian too. I believe that the Lord Jesus died for my sins on the cross and rose again. And being justified by faith, I have peace with God. Praise the Lord, brother, he says, with a firm handshake. We're about to depart. To part. When a thought strikes me, where do you meet? Do you worship somewhere? Oh, he throws his hands out. Oh, not really. Anywhere. You know, I'm out here. Another thought comes to me. Why do you wear those rings in your eyebrows? Fashion. Just fashion, man. Doesn't it say in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, is it? It's actually Leviticus. That we should not pierce our skin or tattoo ourselves? I ask, testing him. When I read that, I was more likely testing God. On what basis do we take a new covenant believer and put that believer back under the old covenant? Leviticus says this. Deuteronomy says this. And yet in our Chinese church, I heard it happen all the time. And yet I tell you what, you could never take the pork out of the Chinese church. (laughs) But I never thought I should stand up and tell them about the old covenant requirements of pork oh no that would be rejected completely I didn't know I like the pork myself (laughs) on what basis do you take a person who is on fire for Jesus in the midst of new life and take them under the law as though the law is the way in which we are going to grow in Christ likeness the early Christian Oregon said that Christians love to hear the Ten Commandments read to them, provided it is Jesus who reads the Ten Commandments to us. Let's hear Jesus read the Ten Commandments. Come with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, we are going to jump around this morning, but I think it's important. In Matthew chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. It is clear if you look at verse 11 that Jesus is speaking to believers. He says, blessed, verse 11, are those who revile you and persecute you because of me. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. 
Verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you are people who have a reward in heaven. And Matthew, of course, is writing, we know, for the Jews. And there are many parallels between Jesus and Moses, but Jesus is not just another Moses. You remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, who is there? Moses is there. Elijah is there. And God says that Jesus is there to Jesus. This is my beloved son. He didn't say that to Moses. He didn't say that to Elijah. This is my beloved son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And in the great commission of Matthew 28, Jesus says you are to go in the world and teach them to obey all that I said. And the wise builder, of course, in this sermon, hears my words, Jesus says, and he does them. Now look at verse 17, because it is a crucial verse in this whole section. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. Paul says that Jesus is actually the target of the law. Jesus fulfills them by meeting the righteous requirements of the law so that there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And he passes the law on to us, his redeemed people, and he gives us its true meaning and its depth. But he's passing it on to those, not saying if you do this, you'll have a reward in heaven. You have a reward in heaven. Therefore, live this way. Now look at verse 21 to 48 and see that there are six examples of how Jesus authoritatively passes the law on to us. He extends the law, he edits the law, and he cancels the law. What right does he have to do that? He is the Lord. He is the Lord of law. He is the Son. Verse 21, look at what he says. He extends murder and he extends it to anger and hatred. Verse 27, adultery. He extends it to the mind so that adultery in the mind is adultery. You would not have interpreted Moses that way, but Jesus does. Look at verse 31. He talks about divorce and he actually edits Moses. Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to prevent flippant divorce. But Jesus says, you may hold that certificate, but if it is based on any other reason but marital unfaithfulness and you remarry, it is an adulterous wedding. Now, in other words, you can go into a remarriage, Jesus says, with your certificate of divorce from Moses, and yet it is not valid. Verse 33, oaths, no lie, but they did say you could swear oaths. Jesus sets it aside. Verse 37, speak truly. Speak openly. Let your word be your bond. And then have a look at this one, verse 38. Revenge. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's Exodus 21. Jesus says, forget it. And he gives us four examples of responding in a surprisingly generous way to any antagonism. There they are, verse 39 and following. And then he comes in verse 33, uh, 43 and he says, well, enemies, <laughs> love your friends, hate your enemies. <coughs> that may well be uh, the thrust of the Pharisaic religion. But Jesus says, forget it. You love your enemies. 
and pray for your persecutors. I simply want you to notice that Jesus revises, rescinds, he edits Moses. Six times he says, but I say to you, because Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the law, and he passes the law on in its relevant form to us. Verse 18, he gives it its permanent relevance. And when we receive and teach it, as he passes it on to us, verse 19, we are great in the kingdom of heaven. So, question, how do I live the redeemed life today? Number one, I need to recognise that the law is not meant to save me or bring me to holiness and Christ-likeness. This is what Spurgeon said, a great quote from the great Baptist preacher. He said, the law is the perfect storm which wrecks my hopes of salvation and drives me onto the rock of all ages. I can't do it. So it's sending me forward to one who has done it on my behalf. Secondly, Jesus by grace has won a place for you at the family table and you're not on probation. You are not there as an employee. You are there as an adopted child. There is no condemnation. You are eternally secure because you are there based on the performance of another. You are a perfect Christian because Christ's performance on your behalf is perfect. And I tell you the one thing that I noticed about my dear Roman Catholic friends that they did not have, which by the grace of God I had, was certainty, assurance. They were taught that if you are sure of your salvation, it is sinful because your salvation is based on what Christ has done and what you have done. And if you're sure, then you're being sure of yourself. But we have assurance by the grace of God because our salvation is all about what Jesus has done. And the third thing I want to say is that Jeremiah in the New Covenant says that God will write his law within, and he has given us the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament for holiness does not drive us to the law, but drives us to the Holy Spirit. Be led by him, live in him, be filled with him, keep in step with him. And he will point you back to the Lord Jesus. And finally, I simply want to say that in the power of the Spirit, I am to say no to the sin nature and yes to the Spirit. And so what is the standard by which I live? The standard by which I live is no longer the old old covenant. The standard by which I live is no longer the Ten Commandments. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't redeemed through Egypt. The standard by which I live is the ethical standard of Jesus and his spirit-anointed apostles and messengers are built on the Ten Commandments. But this is the standard, not that. Well, that's it. But I'm not finished. Because I want to take you now into my office at our church. Chinese church. And I want you to sit there and listen to a conversation which I had. And I think I could have it in any number of churches. He's a young man. He's in his mid-twenties. He's highly intelligent. He's been a Christian for five years. We've had a number of conversations. He is single, well-educated, and has the temptations of a young man in his mid-twenties who is single. And now he's come to see me again. 
uh, I've got a problem. What is the problem? I hear you saying that when we are Christians, we are Christians all because of Jesus and my relationship with God is unconditional because it is based on the work of Jesus which never depreciates and never changes. That's right. But now I want to say to you that I'm starting to think about God as Father in the way I think about my own Father. And I think that's dangerous. Because when I do the right thing by my Father on earth, he approves of me and everything's good. But when I don't do what my Father on earth says, he's aloof and distant. And I'm starting to think of God like that. That when I have a good day, when I walk consistently with the Ten Commandments, God's happy with me. And sometimes I don't have a good day and I don't walk consistently with the Ten Commandments. And I think that God is unhappy with me and he's just like my earthly father. He's turned his back on me. He's aloof and he's walked away. And I don't think I'm thinking rightly. And when I talk to my good friends at church, they don't seem to have an answer. They just give me the Ten Commandments again because I think we've all been raised in the same way. You've got a seat at the table through Jesus. Salvation's by faith in Jesus. But now you grow in holiness by faith in yourself. And I've got to keep myself there. And the law are just his strict requirements and I just can't do it. Can you help me? I can help you. I'm glad you brought your Bible. Please open it to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Friends, you enter in, listen to the conversation. Uh, Please open it to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Let's start there. We've talked about this before, and uh, therefore I know that I can raise it with you without embarrassment now. This is the seventh commandment, and it says, You shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? God is a good father who has what is best in mind for his children and adultery is sexual activity which is outside the covenant of marriage. Adultery, therefore, is sexual activity with anyone with whom you are not married. And God says if you want to really thrive as a person, if you want to grow in maturity, if you want to show the reality of redemption in your life, then one aspect of that will be that you will walk in sexual integrity. Yes, God is intrusive. He cared how his people went to the toilet. He cared how the mothers of Israel had babies. And he cared about the activities of the bedroom. God is intrusive. Now, let's go from there and remember that we are not Jews. We were not redeemed from Egypt. And come with me to what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, because he is our Lord and Saviour, based on what Moses says. Now, look at Matthew 5, verse 27. Please follow in your Bible with me. Here, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, and Jesus does not set that aside. But he does say, I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus doesn't give you a great deal of relief, does he? He's actually saying that adultery in the mind is adultery. 
that if you look at a person, of the, a woman, for example, and if you look lustfully at the woman as though you want her, I'd take her if I could, then Jesus says, even outside of the act, physical adultery, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And I want you to notice that Jesus tells you this for your good. Look down to verse 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, and that means be mature, be whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, therefore, Jesus is coming to you as a redeemed person. You are a saved person. And he's saying, I'm taking Moses and I'm actually extending it to your thought life. And I'm saying that this is part of your maturity as a redeemed person of Christ. Because we follow the ethical injunctions of Jesus and the Spirit-anointed messengers and apostles. We're not under the law. Now, let's go one more step. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And you know that I've often told you that God never tells us what to do without also telling us why. Have a look at 1 Corinthians six eighteen. And remember that the Christians, the small church in Corinth, was surrounded. Corinth was a red light city. There were brothels everywhere. And the apostle says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. That's a linear tense, by the way. And it's a second person, plural, by the way. Not only do you flee, but you take as many of your brothers and sisters with you as you can. Flee from sexual immorality. And I want to tell you that that word sexual immorality is the word porneia. It is pornography. Flee from it. Flee from indulging in it in any way. Sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. And now notice, Paul says, this is what you're to do. Flee, get out of there, because it's a monster. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, run away from a mad dog that's after you. You want to get away from there. But this is a monster that you are told to flee from, but there's something attractive about it. You want to linger and stay. Don't flee friend of mine, by the way, says the only way to beat sexual immorality is with your hat. Grab it and run. Get out of there. Get away from it. Flitch it off. Go. But Paul gives you three reasons. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually is sinning against his body created in the image of God. Second, verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? That means you, as a redeemed person who've received the Holy Spirit, you come under temptation for sexual immorality. And then thirdly, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were purchased. You don't belong to you. You don't have a sex life. Because you belong to Jesus. And you're under his direction. You no longer own you. Now, isn't this an incredible truth? Because of what you believe about your body, because of what you believe about uh, 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 the Holy Spirit, and because of what you believe about what Jesus has done for you in redeeming you, get out of there. Because it's not going to build your holiness in any way. Now, come with me back to Romans 6. Sorry, we're flipping, but you did come to me, and I'm a Bible teacher as well as your pastor. Chapter 6, verse 11. The first command in the letter to the Romans. Isn't it an amazing command? You go all through the letter of the Romans. You open the Quran, page one, Quran, there's commands. 
You open this great theological treatise of the New Testament and you have to read, read, read before you get to your first command. And the first command is in verse 11 of Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Apostle Paul uses the word calculate. You make this calculate calculation about yourself that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that is a remarkable thing and the Apostle Paul is going to go on in Romans chapter 8 and say that to enable you to make that calculation you need the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will lead you to make that calculation that I am dead and now I am alive. And finally come with me to Galatians chapter 5 and I simply want you to notice in Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who may well become indulgent in their lifestyle because they are right with God, so let's any, live any way we please. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 16 of Galatians 5. He says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the fruit, verse 22, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus, Christ Jesus, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, therefore let us queue up behind the Spirit or keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Do you see, dear friend, that the Bible is driving you to the Holy Spirit? He is the one who leads you. He is the one who takes you to the cross. He reminds you that you have an unconditional relationship with God. And he reminds you that the pattern of the cross is how you are to live, dead to the old life, alive to the new. You're a new covenant believer. The Spirit will remind you that you unconditionally belong to God because of Jesus. The Spirit will remind you that you owe nothing to the sin nature. You're not in obligation to that. The Spirit will remind you that when Christ was crucified for you, you were crucified with him on the cross. And as a new covenant believer, the Holy Spirit is here to urge you, to coach you, to train you to say no to the sin nature, no to sexual immorality, no to pornography, and yes to Christ and wholeness and maturity. Now, look, I was at your university, you know, just last week. And I sat in a university Bible study at your university. And uh, you know the people, some of the people who were there probably. And uh, the leader was dealing with uh, this issue of temptation. And he said, the question was for the Bible study group, how can we more effectively resist temptation? He asked me to be a part of the group so that I could critique his leadership later. And uh, I said, do you know that in that question, you said, how can we more effectively resist temptation? The questions came back, read the Bible more, pray more, go to church more, get ourselves into an accountability relationship. And you said, yes, yes, yes. And all those things are good, aren't they? 
Anything else you said? Nothing else? Right, let's go on to the next question. The next question. I'm to pray. I'm to read the Bible more. I'm to go to church more. All good things. I'm to be in an accountability relationship. There is one member of God, the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us to lead us in the battle against temptation. And yet have we become so orthodox that we don't even mention him? There is no recognition of him? The Apostle Paul says, if you want to lead a godly life, then be led by the Spirit. Live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and the Spirit will keep reminding you that you've died to sin. Die to it. Say no to it. Lift your awareness levels of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will lead you in the battle. He'll remind you that you are a son of God. He'll remind you that you have no obligation to the sin nature. He will remind you to take all this junk off and put it to death. He'll remind you that through the cross you are right with God and you identify with the cross lifestyle. He will remind you that your relationship with God is unconditional. It doesn't go up and down. You are always in intimate relationship with God. And he'll remind you that you have a mind from which the judgment of God has been lifted. A mind that is capable of saying no to the sin nature and yes to the spirit. So lift your awareness levels of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to do that for this week. And I want to see you in one week's time. And I want to give you some homework. So here's your homework. I want to say that I want you to remember there are four P's in the Christian life. P, 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 P. P. One, purpose. Two, principle. Three, pattern. Four, power. Purpose. The purpose of the redeemed is to glorify God. You live to the glory of God. The principle by which you live to the glory of God is you love God and love others. Now, let me say that if you were an old covenant believer, that's where the P's finish. Because there is no consistent pattern in the Old Testament and there is no consistent power to live that way. But because you are a new covenant believer, P, purpose, I live to the glory of God in all that I do and think. P, principle, I live according to the principle of love for God and love for neighbour. Pattern. The pattern by which I live is the pattern of Christ-likeness to be conformed to Christ's activity, especially the spirit of crucifixion. And he went to the cross and gave himself for us. That is the pattern by which I see love expressed. And finally, the power. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from within. Don't believe the lie that because you can't see him, he's unreal. He is real. He is unseen. And you know that you have him because of all that Jesus has done. Purpose, principle, pattern, power. And I'll see you in a week's time.